the last several years, CubeSats have become widely popular within the aerospace industry, and more notably within universities across the globe, as more teams utilize this platform to conduct scientific research, demonstrate new technology, and educate the next generation of engineers. CubeSats, for those of you who aren't familiar, are small spacecraft which can range from the size of a tissue box to the size of a shoebox, and they've become particularly popular because they are so much lower in cost and risk as compared to larger spacecraft. And it's because of this structure that CubeSats are allowing students to learn about the challenges that go into designing spacecraft firsthand and become much more prepared to enter their career in the aerospace industry. Yet, despite what CubeSat projects can offer students, some aspects of the student experience can be very different from what is done at the industry level, simply because even though both are designing spacecraft, ultimately these are two very different architectures, both in technical and programmatic terms. So given this, how exactly might student-led CubeSat projects differ in the areas of management, development, and testing from larger spacecraft that are developed at the industry level? Now, if this question intrigues you, then stay tuned for what we will explore in today's episode of the Art of Space Engineering. For any new listeners out there, I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and today I sat down with Professor Chuck Bomer to chat about this topic in a little bit more detail. Professor Bomer currently teaches systems design at ASU, but in the past he's served as a test pilot in the Navy and has systems engineering and program management experience from Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics. So. With this interview, I had a bunch of questions about how larger spacecraft are designed, developed, and tested, and then throughout the conversation I shared my counter or similar experience from working on the Phoenix CubeSat during my undergrad at ASU. We also dove a little bit more into his background in systems engineering and project management, so if you're interested in systems engineering, I hope you find some useful resources from this interview. So with that, sit back, relax, and let's dive right into the interview. So welcome back. Thank you again for donating some of your time to talk with me today as we kind of uh, compare and contrast some experiences on working on both small and large spacecraft alike. Um, So I I have a bunch of questions on design and testing, but I thought we would start out with exploring your experience a little bit more first. Um, So I know that during your time at Lockheed, you worked on spacecraft for the intelligence agency. Um, And I I take it that you're probably not allowed to talk about what the payloads for those specific missions were. Am I correct? So like, I can't ask you if you worked on like space lasers and if that's really a thing or. No. Okay. Okay. I didn't think so. Okay. Interesting. So not space lasers, but probably space lasers. Got it. Um, So uh, I guess going away from that topic, I guess we'll say, um, so your experience at Lockheed, you said last time was more on the the program management side. Um, Mm -hmm. So I thought it'd be cool to talk about what some of your responsibilities were as a PM and what made that experience rewarding for you. Okay. Well, basically as a, as a program manager, as NASA calls them project managers, there is a, a, they're, they're one and the same. But you're you're responsible for the entire program, the the uh, system performance, the schedule, and the cost. Uh, and most of the design and performance issues 
up to a point are the responsibility of systems engineering. Uh, it's a extremely, especially if, if you have a schedule issue, it can be extremely stressful, but uh, the, uh, I think the thing, one single thing that made it most rewarding is working with all the people. And uh, I think that's, you know, it sounds cliche, but it really isn't. It's the people that make the program. Mm -hmm. and, and being able to work with all of the people and all the departments and constantly learn lots about every single thing about these programs, uh, you know, the control systems, the electric systems, uh, propulsion systems, uh, you just increase your knowledge with every time you, you get involved with it. And it's really interesting. Um, and for me, it was. But, but the big rewarding experience was all the people and working with them. So in addition, were you mostly like the, just the primary um, interface between um, like stakeholders and then the rest of the team more so yes. than like systems yeah. engineering? Okay. Well, the, the part of the responsibilities or one of the big responsibilities of systems engineering is that they, they really are the interface between the contractor program and the customer program. And the, early on in the program the hopefully the two program managers the contractor and a customer stay out of the way and and just you know watch and and get a get a big foot when you need it but it's the you know the systems engineering team from the uh, customer and the systems engineering team from the program manager that really do all of the initial interfacing and uh, uh, the engineers, uh, the hardware engineers, software engineers will do some interfacing, but it's mostly the two systems engineering organizations that, that, that are really responsible for getting the program going uh, up through the PDR. And, and after that, the design engineers really have a, a lot of say in the program and, and a lot up to that point too, because you're starting to get well into design, but it, it's systems engineering job to get you there and, and to get you from PDR to CDR. Right. Um, so you mentioned before as well that you, so like you, I know you have ex, um, systems engineering experience in the Navy. So which, which one of those did you like doing more? being a systems engineer or being on the program management side? Well, probably on the, a little of both because, you know, you're responsible as a program manager for systems engineering and the chief system engineer works for you. So, right. so you really can, can get involved, but not as much as you'd like to as a program manager. You need to, you know, stay hands off and let everybody, you know, do their own thing. So when, when I was in the Navy, I, it was a little more hands-on as a system engineer mm -hmm. in some of the programs that, that I worked. Um, and and that, was, that was really a, a, a lot of fun. I was a lot younger then, but, but it really was very enjoyable. But so was being a program manager. Just more headaches is all. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, um, as, as, Serving as the PM for Phoenix, I, I can definitely agree with with a lot of that. Um, yeah. And I, I guess like the the benefit of being on more of you know a, a small team, like we were 
mostly just like a small team of people tr kind of trying to figure things out at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, it definitely allowed me to be a little bit more hands-on as, mm -hmm. as the PM and, and yeah. kind of take a PM slash systems engineering role because none of us knew what we were doing and we were all kind of just trying to figure it out. Yeah. So. And, yeah. it, and it doesn't make, change all that much with a large program either. That it, it just uh, a matter of scale. Mm -hmm. You know, you still have the same thing. You, you know, you you've got to have some kind of a a manager, whether you call them a project program manager, or program leader, or whatever. You still have some form of systems engineering, or at least going through the process. You have integration and test, verification, validation and so on and it's only a matter of scale uh is the difference and, and sometimes the pressures are a lot different too the the customer can can make a huge difference and also the the rationale for the program and a lot of the programs that i i worked on were a matter of of national priority and and so there was always pressure to try and maintain schedule and maintain launch Whereas with uh, um, some other payloads, you don't have quite those pressures, uh, but but you do to a certain extent because if you miss schedule, it costs more money. Mm -hmm. It always costs more money. And uh, a friend of mine that in the Air Force that I used to work with a lot used to say, you know, the the uh, the optimum amount of money for a program was the day you signed the contract and and after that it, it, it always went up it mm -hmm. never failed and you know if you tried to compress the schedule it costs more money because you're putting more time in and and if you move the schedule out it costs more money so staying on schedule and on cost is the only way to to get there um, but it, it rarely happens unfortunately yeah, I guess our, our experience is a, a little bit different because we got so so we were funded by NASA, but we got all of our funding up front. Um, mm -hmm. And we just we put all of that towards the hardware and uh, any additional supplies we needed because we didn't have a lab and we didn't like we didn't have enough ESD mats and we needed to, to you know, buy proper equipment so we could make a flat set and, and make sure that, you know, everything was being handled very safely uh, in terms of ESG control. And so yeah, for, for the most part, it was kind of like NASA was very hands-off and it was good. it was mostly just us kind of pushing our own schedule until eventually we were manifested on a launch. And once we, uh, once we were manifested on a launch, that's when schedule became very, very real. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we had to figure out how to, we had to figure out, you know, exactly like at a minimum what we really, really needed so we could make sure that we had a robust system that would go to space and do exactly what it needed to. So, yeah, but even that date was defined by us too. They said, when can you, when can you be ready? We told them a date. Um, the first time we did not make that date, the second time we did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was, it was, and, and, and pushing back cost time and, and, and work on on their end when, when we did do mm. that. But um, so, you know, that we, we really didn't want to do that, but we definitely weren't ready to launch the first time that we said we were. So, yeah, so that's, that's, I guess that's the experience that we didn't quite see in working mm. on, uh, in working on our CubeSat. So that's, that's interesting to see that side of things and how, 
larger and, and smaller programs might be slightly different. But then again, that's also just our experience. I don't, I don't know how many other, I know like other CubeSat teams can work with like other NASA centers on collaborating on different mm -hmm. payloads or, or other things. So that's just our experience. But coming back to systems engineering a little bit, um, for any students who are listening to this podcast, I was wondering if you might have any advice for any students who are interested in pursuing systems engineering as a career um, in terms of like what good focus areas are there to really study and learn. Um, it seems having a really good basis in electrical engineering can definitely be very helpful because yeah. you know, electrical engineering and even like software, um, just from working on Phoenix, software is, is basically your entire satellite. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so understanding those is is really critical to just yeah, knowing think, what yeah. questions to ask. Yeah, double doubly in in software, or you know, they kind of run the gamut in in any kind of satellite. And uh, but I think it, you know, if someone is really interested in going into systems engineering, I think the first thing you understand is it, it's rare that that larger companies anyway put brand new employees into systems engineering. Employees brand new, meaning they don't, they don't have any experience, they're fresh out of, uh, out of a university. Uh, I think the best thing that can be done is to, if they're really interested, is to try and find an online course, or at least at ASU, if they have a technical elective, they can take, uh, uh, CC does have that SES 405 systems engineering course, but also there's a lot of online courses available around the country in systems engineering that uh, if they didn't have the time, they could take those or the um, microcosm, the publishers of the SMAD book. Oh uh, yeah, SMAD is great. They, they have an excellent systems engineering book. Uh, it's <laughs> It's actually bigger than than the SMAD book that you have. Oh, so it's not the NASA. It's not NASA Systems Engineering Handbook. It's something no, completely no, different. No, 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 no. Well, it I didn't is, know this was a thing. Pardon? Googling this right. I didn't know this was a thing. Googling this right now. Can you see this? Let's <laughs> no. see. Oh. <laughs> no, the green screen's like covering it. Uh, here, applied the, applied space. Wait, it, it's applied <laughs> space title? systems engineering. Okay. And it's uh, the same guy, it's L Wiley Larson, and it's done by Microcosm. Hmm. And it runs, I think I got it for 70 bucks. All and, right, and I will it's, look at this. It's well worth having. It's, it's really well done. Yeah, because I've, like, I've read through the NASA Systems Engineering Handbook, and that's, that's pretty good, you know, good at outlining the, the general... Yeah. Or you know, organizational process of how things come together. Yeah, that that's that's not actually bad. And the uh, Defense Acquisition University has a uh, a good systems engineering uh, handbook too. Hmm. DAU, if you look up Defense Acquisition University, uh, they've got a systems engineering handbook. I think that I actually believe it's better than NASA's, but it's uh, it's not bad. And, and NASA's is good too, especially if you're going to be working NASA programs at 7123, you have to abide by. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're, both of those are, are very good. So what uh, does the DAU book go into that's not really covered in the it's NASA's just the way, It's handbook. just the way it's done. 
Oh, okay. The organization so and what, mm -hmm. what's said, I mean, it's all the same, I, mm -hmm. you know, system SE process is the SE process, but it's just, just the way it's put. It, it's very, very well done. Hmm. Uh, okay. and, and so's NASA. It just, I think is just a matter of individual preference. Okay. Um, but th this applied space systems engineering is really good. And the, I think the, the best thing is it looks at everything from a space system standpoint. And it's got two very, very good examples as it goes through the book. Uh, one is Firesat, of course. Yeah. And uh, I forget what the other is. Uh, it's more of a software type program. Okay. Uh, but but they do a good job of uh, using those as examples as they walk through the process. Cool. I wow. Thank you. I will check that out. That's a, that's awesome. So and I I think that uh, without taking any course and just looking at either one of those handbooks, a, a student could get an excellent understanding of the system engineering process uh, that they may not otherwise get. Uh, I think that students, that anybody that wants to go into systems engineering needs to be able to see the big picture uh, and, and also be able to, you know, and that means being able to see the forest for all the trees. Mm -hmm. Can't get stuck on a, on a single tree. Um, something else I just happened to think of is that they, they could at least see whether they maybe had the personality for it by looking at those uh, Gentry Lee videos. Oh, yeah. Uh, one, so you want to be a system engineer, yeah, and the great. other one is a canvases, uh, canvases blank. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them by Gentry Lee at JPL. Um, th those are just, I think, the so you want to be a systems engineer is an excellent, excellent video. And, and if you find a couple of traits in there that you're not comfortable with, then you're probably not going to be comfortable with, with uh, being a systems engineer. Yeah, that's and, fair. And I think that one of the, the very first things he says, if, if I remember correctly, that I think is really important, and I've seen it not work out, is you have to be comfortable with change. Yeah. And if, if you're in electrical power systems or propulsion or any of the other subsystems as a hardware software engineer, uh, change isn't that big a deal, you know, but in systems engineering, up until you get to critical design review, everything is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And like he said, your job is never done. You know, you go to bed and the next morning you might have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you're not comfortable with that, it'll drive you nuts. So, so I think those are some some things that they can look at as a, either the uh, uh, the NASA seventy one twenty three systems engineering handbook, the DAU systems engineering handbook, uh, learn the systems engineering processes. Yeah, and going off of uh, resources, I think one of well, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make this podcast as well is I, I think really like the one of the best ways that you can train yourself for becoming a systems engineer or um, just you know see if you like it is is by reading technical papers on how things were designed and learn exactly what other people have done and and the lessons that they've learned 
and that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, even because really you get better at systems engineering and knowing what to look out for as you get experience. And so the question yes. is, well, how do I get myself, you know, how mentally can I get myself like five years ahead? So that way, when I you know, go into the workplace, like I know mm -hmm. exactly what I'm doing yeah. and I'm able to contribute in a way that's, that's constructive. And I'm, you know, um, I'm, I'm helping catch issues because everyone's, you know, everyone's so busy. Everyone's got like 5 million things on their plate and um, just having as many minds on a problem as possible mm -hmm. is, is really helpful. So. Yeah. In reading papers on lessons learned, uh, you know, most every program uh, I know for NASA, also DOD, when after launch or after something goes wrong, there's always a lessons learned paper. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times that goes back into a lot of them go back into systems engineering. Uh, if you look at Genesis, for example, and go look at that, uh, you know, lessons learned paper. If you go and uh, the, uh, uh, that Tyro satellite at Lockheed, you know, that fell off the bench. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the, I that mean, the lessons learned <laughs> on that one is, is incredible. I mean, I yeah. mean it's just, a, it's a comedy of errors. And uh, it's, it's, you, you can learn lots from that. Uh, you know, and that, I mean, it is as simple as how important documentation is. When, when, when you've got a satellite sitting on a bench, you have to document every movement and oh, it yeah. has to be truthful that people actually signed off on things that they never looked at. There were 12 bolts missing off of a, uh, a turnaround table. And the, somebody signed off that they were all there. Mm -hmm. And before that, somebody took the bolts and never documented the fact that they did. They needed it for some, the bolts for something else. Oh, um, that's lovely. <laughs> isn't that lovely? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and when they went to turn it over on its side, the bolts that were there couldn't hold that satellite. And mm -hmm. Off it went. Documentation is, God, documentation. It's it's so important. And it's something that we really took for granted. Um, yeah. You know, it's and something it's, that the university teams definitely shouldn't take for granted because, yeah, I mean, at yeah, least when we boring, started. You know, it's, it's yeah. boring and it's, it's not very sexy, but it, it has to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially for university teams too, it's, uh, I mean, like when you've got homework and, you know, you're, you're not working on the spacecraft full time, like adding an additional work to really document things is, yeah. you know, it's, it's taxing on top of just trying to get the work done in the first mm -hmm. place as quickly as possible. Yeah. And, you know, so I mean, like one of the questions that we had when we first started was like, like how... Uh, how and you know how detailed do we really have to go with like keeping track of everything um, because you know we're we're not like a NASA system um, yeah. but you know the the reality is, is that it, it is still really important you should do configuration management and you know track software versions and you know what things have been qual tested Absolutely. and yeah. do mate demate logs and have people like actually sign it off and have an approval process for all of that because if you don't do that that's just like the easiest way that you can become disorganized and miss yeah. something. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah. I think that level of documentation is one of the best things that university CubeSat projects can teach. People, yeah. My yeah. Opinion. yeah. Requirements management, configuration yep. management. It can yep. turn into a mess and just, and you take, you know, again, uh, thinking about scale, just think about uh, the requirements document for the James Webb telescope, for example. 
Oh my God. And, you know, and how that, how quickly that could get out of hand. You, you, you know, yeah. if, if people just start doing their own thing. And I mean, there are just pages and pages and pages of, of those requirements and they have to be managed by a configuration control board. Everybody's got to be singing from the same sheet of music. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So, so segueing off of this introduction to like systems engineering and um, just developing spacecraft in general, um, CubeSats have provided like really great ways to test new technology and with very little risk. But in general, heritage you know really matters a lot with spacecraft design, especially larger and much more uh, like scarily mm-hmm. expensive spacecraft uh, than, than CubeSats. So in the programs you worked on, was hardware usually just taken from heritage designs and then maybe modified slightly to meet whatever mission requirements you were working on? Or uh, did you have to develop any new technologies as well? It, it, was, it was really all of the above. Uh, most of the satellites that I was involved with were, were one-offs. Uh, in, in some cases, you, you might have built uh, maybe two of them. And, and then the design change for the same system was so great that there really was no heritage you, you could use. Probably the biggest heritage between spacecraft uh, in those days was the electrical power system. Uh, pretty much the same systems were used over and over again. It was just a matter of of, uh, of placement and analysis of how much you need. But there was always pressure uh, to use, you know, heritage if you could, uh, because obviously it was cheaper. Right. Uh, it got also in the uh, early 90s, there, there was a huge pre- change to take a look at commercial off-the-shelf systems and, and get away from space qualt. Uh, that was particularly true on NASA programs and non-military programs. Uh, but it, there, the, the heritage uh, was, was always a push. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you were looking at the one-offs, uh, building one of a kind or change, significantly changing the technology during the, uh, from one satellite to another, even though it was somewhat the same system, they were totally different. You figure uh, a lot of those satellites back in the 80s and 90s, their design life was five to 10 years, but they were lasting for 20. And, and the technology went through three or four or five changes by that time. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a satellite that may have been called program X, uh, all the way through the number one and number three look nothing at all like each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was probably number three was more compact, better usage of solar cells and batteries. The comm systems changed constantly back then. They still are. Uh, that's about the time we were really getting into low power KAKU uh, for onboard comm systems. And so a lot of the uh, antennas were much, much smaller than, than some of the old uh, S-band uh, systems that were on the older satellites. 
So, so things change so much that, that, like I said, with the exception of electrical power, uh, heritage really wasn't there. And even within electrical power, batteries changed the lithium ion batteries from the huge batteries of yore. Uh, the, what used to be thought of as high efficiency gallium arsenide solar cells at 18% or are now up to around 35, 40%. And, oh, wow. you know, and so, you, you know, the, the heritage there, you just couldn't, you didn't want to go out and use gallium arsenide when there was a lot more efficient cells available, even though you put them on pretty much the same way, the manufacturing and the, uh, the engineering process to install them was pretty much the same. Uh, but you ended up with smaller array, a lot smaller arrays for the same amount of power required and fewer batteries for the same amount of storage that you wanted to have. And so you could change the, the looks and the structure of the entire satellite. So, they, they, but again, it, it uh, as satellites became more and more expensive, the, the push for, for heritage became greater and greater. You know, why can't you mm-hmm. use what they used on another satellite system? You know, just build it again. You can do it, you know, with your eyes closed and then, you know, make that work. And, and in some cases, NASA insisted on that. And in some cases, the Department of Defense insisted on that. You know, use the same electrical power system as you used on program Y. Mm-hmm. And, and it forced, you know, it forced out the design and the design engineers didn't like it sometimes uh, because it made the satellite bigger than they thought it had to be. But you could run into that problem all the time anyway. Right. You know, design people like architects or artists, you know, want to have, you, you know, room for their own imagination and not have somebody tell them what to do. So. Right. But there's always that push to use heritage system or systems that were built. And, and it's one it's it's one of the first things in the systems engineering prod, uh, process. When when you look at your uh, requirements analysis, you want to look back at technology and see what's available that you can bring forward into your own system. And and then make a decision via trade off study as to whether that is the using that if, if the measure of effectiveness is the same as using a new system or more than or less than and then you know, you know conduct a, your proper trade study to determine what to do mm-hmm. sometimes you're told what to do and you know okay the, the customer has the money and they you know they can tell you that Going off of that a little bit. So, I mean, like one, one thing that I think is, is really cool, at least for like CubeSats at the university level is that, you know, it, it really allows students to, to really learn those subsystems because for a lot of teams, so like we got, we got very lucky uh, in the sense that we applied for this student flight research opportunity at, with, within NASA and were funded like $200,000 in order to, to put the satellite together. But those opportunities are really hard to come by. And so, I mean, for universities that want to build a CubeSat, like they, they have to, you know, design it from the ground up and, and really learn how all of those systems work. Um, and so I, I think it's awesome that you get that experience from working on something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for a lower cost, you you can still be flexible with the design and and kind of put a, a system together. All of our hardware was was basically heritage, and you know that's useful because you're essentially getting hardware that you know is is very reliable and that's worked in space in the past. You don't have to worry about um, missing all of those complexities that you haven't you know you wouldn't even know to think about because you're not you're learning about these systems for like the first time basically um and you know that's that's especially important with more of like the protective measures especially when it comes to like eps systems i felt um i think in terms of commercial off-the-shelf hardware while it it definitely made our job um, a lot less complex since we didn't have to design any of, of the key components. It um, we definitely became limited in some areas and had to make compromises based on what we could do with the project, just based on what was out there. But it, I mean, it seems like with larger spacecraft, you have a lot more control over essentially every part of the design. Whereas with CubeSats, uh, you know, you, you can have that if you're designing your own thing, but you know, it's. Maybe it's it's not as complex or or robust, and you're taking a lot of risk in doing that. Um, but if you buy commercial off-the-shelf hardware, you really don't have that level of control, which can be frustrating and that's lead right. to compromises. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's that's interesting. Um, did you ever run in into any like any uh, like issues like that using commercial off-the-shelf hardware or even uh, like heritage hardware? Or is it you know, mostly just in terms of, um, I guess, what people wanted to include and, and maybe what they didn't want to include? No, I, I, don't, I can't remember any issues like that that, that we ever had. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. No. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a good thing, so I'll take that. It was that. a good thing. <laughs> All right. So one area I do want to cover in this podcast is systems integration, since it's, it's really not something that you can really teach in a class. Um, it's... It's very it's very difficult to like teach people where to place things uh, yeah. within a satellite. Um, so I was I was curious on how did you decide where components should go, um, and was the layout generally very similar between the different programs that you worked on in terms of where hardware went, or you know kind of like what we were talking about earlier. It's it's since there's so many years between working on different programs, do you know things get smaller and less complex, and you have more uh, flexibility in the yeah, I don't. I don't think there was at all a standard uh, of where things went. I, I think they took a little of what do you call the concurrent engineering up front, mm -hmm. you know, between all of the hardware and software people. To you know, it, it's like a puzzle, and you know where you know what is. Uh, the best design for the structure in order to get everything that we need in there. And, and that's why the structure is really one of the last things that, that's designed. Everybody needs to understand or the EPS people need to understand what the electrical power system requirements are and the propulsion uh, all the way through. And then you have an idea of what your waste uh, uh, weight size and power are for every single subsystem and then they can get together and they force the structure around it and 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 also uh thermal control plays a huge part in where things go 
Oh, yeah. uh, whether it's in Leo, Mio, or Hio, uh, plays a big part of where things go. You know, how much are you going to be facing the sun? How much are you going to be facing away from the sun? Uh, so, so thermal plays a huge part in in where things go, and also you get you get to the point uh, uh, where you have to take a look at. Uh, uh, you know, going through the Van Allen belt and hardening uh, against radiation. Uh, you know, where where do you want uh, your your computer components to go so you don't get uh, so you're not taking high risk with single event upsets all the time uh, and the possibility of losing a computer. And so, it, it again, it's kind of like a puzzle, and you take a look at all of that and try and look at the best place for every, the best placement for, for everything, and then, then put it all together. And, and of course, all of that has to be done with the sensor in mind, whatever, whatever science you have on board or whatever sensor you have on board, that's the reason for being of everything else. And, and right. so that has to obviously be taken into account. You have, uh, are you doing imaging? Do you have a radar? Uh, are you just an RF receiver? Uh, are you a receiver transponder, as in a ComSat? And all of that, you have to pretty much design your satellite and all of the subsystems around the what the sensor requires. Uh, again, that's the purpose that you're up there in the first place. So every everything has to match that, and then then finally you've you've got to uh, you know worry about you know mass centers of gravity moments of inertia and things like that, and and once you you kind of take a trial and error and put it all together, <coughs> you may have to move some things around uh, because your moments of inertia or your center of gravity aren't in the right place for that particular satellite. And you need to move it one way or another, up, down, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And so you shift a few things here, a few things there, and you finally, you know, get to, to where everything needs to be. So, so it's really kind of trial and error in, in a sense, but it's also, uh, you, you know, you can take a look at it all from an engineering standpoint and before you ever put it all together, you have a very, very good idea uh, of, of what it's going to look like, you know, from a, from a mass moment of inertia standpoint, which is really important when you're, you know, on the pad. Right. So uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's a game. But but it, uh, it it's it's very scientific. Uh, did you ever ha do you have any like stories of any interesting challenges that you ran into um, when it came when it came time to choosing where components went? Probably the only story is that we uh, we had a satellite pretty well designed around a uh, a sensor, and the customer changed the sensor on us and which required almost a complete redesign. And in that, in that case, we tried to keep everything we could as close as possible to the original. 
but but because of size, weight, and power, we had to move a lot of things around. Uh, it was the same mission, but but a different sensor altogether, and uh, it it caused a lot of heartburn uh, with the design engineers. <laughs> so, yeah. It, 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 and and it was a matter of it, it was the what uh, what is referred to as beneficial risk uh, technology. Uh, there was a technology breakthrough somewhat overnight. It, it allowed us to put a much much better sensor on board, hmm. but the uh, the size, weight, and power requirements of that sensor were totally different. Uh, than the other one and so it just it wreaked havoc you know throughout the design world in with that particular satellite and then a lot of things had to be moved uh, uh, it was I want to say major redesign but it it, it how, really wasn't how far along were you at the time like were you at CDR or um, and you <laughs> like you'd started we manufacturing were at CDR, things? Oh, so gosh. We, we, we had to redo CDR actually that's Fun. Uh, but, <laughs> I'm so oh, sorry. Yeah, that was a ball. <laughs> but I, I think you know, overall, when everybody saw what this new sensor could do, I, I think it. Uh, most people were uh, okay with it, mm -hmm. and and didn't mind the extra work. Yeah, um, and it was it. It it was just one of those things that worked out, and uh, and the. The, the long and short of it was the satellite was a huge success um, in, in terms of, a, you know, a, a total turnaround and redesign in a very, very short period of time. And it took the whole team pulling together to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, How short it, of a time? It, is, it, it, uh, it, it really is a puzzle when you first start out as to to where to put everything and it's kind of you know everything has its place and there's a reason for it how short of a time did you have to turn that around then about six months oh and that's not very much yeah that's yeah that's not when we were what we're six and a half years into the program so there they the 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 best thing that that happened was is that the uh we we forced out what we did is made a pre-configured interface for the sensor design company and told them that it, that the sensor had to fit that pre-configured interface. And, and so as far as the external portion of the satellite was concerned, we really didn't have to worry about it. What we had to worry about was what the sensor did for increased power, what it did to the moments of inertia and the mass. And uh, then we had to kind of make everything fit to that. But at least we forced it to fit on the satellite so that for the external structure to fit the sensor on it, there, there was no change. Oh, well, that, that's, we, we that's kept great. The same, we kept the same interface. Okay. So... And when we just called it a pre-configured interface and that they had to match. And it was difficult. It put, it put the onus on them, but it wasn't that, turned out it wasn't that difficult. Did you, so did you initially require it that way? So that way, you know, like you no. knew you only had to be concerned with like 
mass and power or was it just um, based on how you were designing the structure? That's just what, what you guys decided to do or? That's what we decided to okay. do. Yeah. Did yeah, you continue? We thought, we thought we were going to head for a total redesign and uh, then somebody came up with that idea is that they could they could redesign the interface a lot faster than we could design the structure redesign right. the structure and it took a lot it uh, took a lot on their side and a lot of thought and a lot of really good engineering but we were able to do the interface the same I had a question. I forgot what it was. Um, <laughs> oh, a senior moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. I already have gray hairs. Do you? I have. I do. From I, I felt from working on Phoenix. I, I have. I found. I found gray hairs. It. Oh my yeah, goodness. It's, oh, Sarah. <laughs> I was very sad. <laughs> there. There. I, f I feel it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna lose my hip next or something. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, I'm sorry you have to put up with that. But that that's, that's what happens. Just think about your future now. I know. I know. It's just going through undergrad and, and a CubeSat. That's all it took. Everything else is just going to accelerate the process. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess uh, going, going off of the structure, um, for larger spacecraft, like how do you so how do, you, how do you go about doing fit checks and, and making sure that the structure has been, um, I guess, designed properly with everything in mind? Is, is that all really mostly just done in CADs? I mean, like to, to check things, we made, a, uh, we made like 3D printed models to make sure that we could practice assembly procedures and that, um, you know, actually putting it together uh, we didn't we didn't run into any any issues that had to you know required a redesigning CAD. Um, so did you did you make anything like that? Did you did you have to put it all and design it all in CAD and then just make engineering models and then pretty uh, much we we got mm -hmm. to the point where everything was designed on CAD and and then put together uh, and manu and or manufactured. Uh, it used to be that you know engineering models were were the big deal you know you you'd just build a, a a satellite that you may or may not ever fly uh, but as time went on and satellites got so much more complex and so much more expensive uh, it just got became out of the question uh, to to have those that luxury mm -hmm. and so the number one that was built was number one that was going to fly every once in a while what what you would do is build number one and it would fly number two you'd find design changes or fixes that, that you wanted to make or needed to be make and so then you'd build number two fly it and then reconfigure number one so that it was like number two i see that makes sense uh but but basically everything was done by cad and uh, you just manufactured from that, and and it was it was pretty good stuff. I mean, you you didn't have we had very very few problems okay. uh, with that. With Phoenix, we I think you know, and especially I, I think this too because it, it's it's such a small volume. Um, I mean, for the most part, the the three D printing models that we that we made work really well, and so mm -hmm. we moved. Um, 
Not like super quickly, but it, we didn't have to do like a, a massive redesign in order to, to, you know, feel confident that we could start fabricating. But definitely once we fabricated all of the brackets and then started, you know, developing harnessing and trying to actually, you know, really put things together with what we had machined, like we did make a lot of like small modifications to support mm -hmm. better cable routing or, um, you know, when it, when it came time. So like our, we have an access port, which has a, a USB interface so we can upload software and a DC charging port so we can, um, we can charge it without having to, to power the solar panels. Good. Like when it came to, to fit time to fit those too, it, we found that those needed to be like a little bit wider to, to support um, like the actual, putting the actual cable in there. So, mm -hmm. so we definitely had to machine it and then make a, a couple of small adjustments in order to, to make sure that everything interfaced correctly. Did yeah, you well, ever? Three, you know, three, 3D printing, I think is really probably helped, you know, in, in, in that region. And of course, you know, that, wasn't available until, you know, just a few years ago. That's a relatively, you know, recent technology, uh, you know, that's available. And boy, I would, I would have loved to have had that, yeah. you know, back then. Um, but, uh, you know, the CAD, it, it, there were a number of times where, you know, just like what you said, you when you were manufacturing, uh, you know, bits and pieces and machining them, uh, you, you may have had to machine them a couple of three or four times uh, to make it right, uh, mm -hmm. but it wasn't usually that big a deal. But the machine shops were certainly busier in those days that they, than they probably are now just because of 3D printing. Mm -hmm. so, in, so since you really only had like one, uh, since it, it really would have been expensive to make two of the exact same spacecraft, um, was the first time that like the whole assembly process really came together like during systems INT and there wasn't um, and so any any fix that you found in that process like basically has to be made kind of much later on well we like, made, we made a lot of fixes on the fly but I think mm -hmm. what uh, what we did then was I think we did a lot more subsystem testing uh then then is done now uh again it, it just uh it cost a lot of money right um and it's still an argument is systems test versus subsystem test but uh when when we put a subsystem into the spacecraft uh it, it had been thoroughly tested and then when we went into system test uh, there, if something went wrong, there was generally very little doubt about what it was that was wrong. And, uh, and so the, the fixes that had to be made were, were really minimal. Uh, I don't think, um, I never saw any kind of what I would call major redesign or fix, uh, that had to happen, uh, uh, because of something that went wrong in system test okay. uh, or thermal vac or, uh, or shake and bake. Um, never, you know, things went wrong, but they were typically minor that could be fixed. Um, 
you, you know, when you didn't have to tear the whole thing apart. Okay. And, and that was the result of, of really good subsystem testing. But that was also cost a lot of money mm-hmm. to do that. Mm, okay, I guess one more. I'm not sure if we went over this. We, maybe we've answered this question, but I'll ask it just in case. So designing a system layout can be pretty challenging, and you always tend to find stuff later that you can't, you don't always see or understand with CAD. Um, so like one example that I, I'd read about is that with Spirit and Opportunity, they, they installed a battery um, on the bottom of, of the rover, so beneath the main electronics boards, because they... They thought it would just it would place the center of mass a lot closer to the ground. So you know they're they're just using, um, you know, engineering. They're just thinking about it as an engineer and in terms of, of where to place a component. Um, but this ended up being a very high risk operation. Um, so granted, those rovers were pretty much like mm-hmm. packed with everything. But anytime they had to remove the battery, they had to they had to there there a lot of risk was involved with just getting the main electronics board out so they could get to the battery itself. Um, so, and, and that was something, you know, that's one of those things that the engineers like laid awake at night, um, you know, wondering how, how it went. Um, and that was definitely something that they fixed with curiosity. They ended up basically flipping the rover over. So everything was put into the rover basically when it was flipped upside down and they made sure that there was enough room to where they could actually get to every single component that they needed to. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the question, going off of that, the question that I wanted to ask was more of like, have you ever run into any major challenges like that with systems integration late in the game, kind of when everything's already been designed and, um, and fabricated and, and you're going through the, the AINT process? Um, granted, those rovers are, are a lot more mm-hmm. compact, like I said, but yeah. The, the only thing that I can think of was, was what we talked about already, that major right. design change uh, with, with that satellite. Uh, there have been some really uh, dumb integration problems. Uh, you know, when you go to plug a subsystem into the, into the wiring, you find out you have two male plugs. Oh. You know, things like that, which are, are simple fixes, but they're, they're just, you know, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, somebody didn't follow the, the process somewhere along the line. And, you know, little, little dumb things like that uh, are really the, the only thing that I've ever seen. I'm sure there were all sorts of examples, but I never ran into them. Okay. Well, that's good. That's that's a good thing. Yes, that's a good <laughs> There's thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. All right, all right. So so we've spent a lot of time on on systems design and systems integration, but the the real fun part is testing. Of um, course, for sure. So Software. going into more of the development and testing side of things, um, one thing I, I was really interested in poking about was the flight software, since um, you know, really, it, it, like I was saying earlier, it's basically your entire spacecraft if you're flight That's software right. doesn't work, then you can't perform your mission at all. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious to know like how, what, what the software development and testing process was like, uh, like would, would people just develop something and make it on a Linux target, make sure that it, that it worked and then go and test that on the actual hardware? 
for the most part? For what we always did was have simulators, spacecraft simulators that were part of the contract. And the software was tested and tested and retested and then retested before it ever got to the spacecraft. And, and then finally, when everybody was happy with all of the testing through the simulator uh, on the ground, you would, you know, test the software, you know, command by command. Uh, it's a long involved process as I'm sure you've seen, but it, that's, that's how it was done. And then finally, again, once everybody was happy and it, uh, it went through its verification, when you had final verification of the flight software, you loaded it up. And, and then part, you know, part of on-orbit testing was one command at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you'd start off and of course, the first thing you gotta do is get power to the spacecraft, uh, especially if you had a long time to orbit, uh, your batteries were running low, so you had to put out your solar arrays. And, but you did that very, very slowly, command by command, to, to get those solar arrays out. Don't those, does, do those tests take days to like fully oh, they, unfurl? They can, the... take, they can take months. Uh, oh. But, but uh, uh, it, on, uh, on, on orbit, of course, you're talking days. But, you know, in the, in the plant, you know, you're, you're talking, you know, flight software tests is, are months long. And, and going through that and just making sure every every little thing is right and going over it and over it and over it. And it's why, you know, flight software, of course, is one of the last things, again, that, that comes into final design because it has to incorporate every change that's been taken in, you know, up, up through and including CDR, if mm-hmm. there are any changes and, and how does that change the, you know, the uh the command structure that goes to the spacecraft that's interesting so like we we had um we had a very different experience uh on phoenix so we we purchased commercial off-the-shelf hardware but we didn't get eSIMs with it um so really the best way to actually develop all of the, the flight software was to just program everything on the actual hardware and so it was like we had one OBC and we would um, basically just develop, develop different software applications, whatever we were working on, run it, make sure that it actually, like, you know, it, it built properly. And then we would have to load it onto the OBC, test it, make sure it worked. Um, you know, you would pretty much almost always get a seg fault. Uh, and then We'd have to go. Oh, okay, so this is where the error occurred. Fix that. Test it on the OBC again. But you know, even then, you're testing like everything on hardware. Mm-hmm. And so there, there was one notable time where we uh, accidentally erased the firmware, part of the firmware of our camera, um, because of that. Because we had, because we didn't, we didn't have a, an eSIM or anything. So we ended up having to ship it back to the vendor in order <laughs> for them to fix. Which you know, and it was very, it was they turned that around very quickly and that, that was, that was awesome. Um, we were, we were definitely very grateful for that, but yeah, that's definitely was a risk, um, in terms of, in terms of incorporating that, but it's also mm-hmm. probably why the, it also probably allows the components to be cheaper as well, I would imagine. So. Yeah. 
how many people usually work on the flight software for a large spacecraft? Oh my God. Um, I think I had one program. There was about 150 software oh people. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But that's kind of crazy to think about when I'm, you know, I'm for the most part, I'm used to CubeSats or um, instruments. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, again, it, it may be different today because of the software changes. We were back then, I shouldn't say back then, but everything was in Fortran. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, this huge shift just before I left Lockheed, as a matter of fact, to, to go to C++. Okay. Go from Fortran to C++. And uh, of course, those were, that was a major change, you know, to, to you know, change all that software. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Fortran was, uh, it, it was labor intensive. It's yeah, we good, just, good software, though. Yeah, we, we used C for pretty much everything yeah. that we did. And I, I think the largest that our, our team really got was like eight people for the yeah. most part. So very far from 150. But you're, you're talking, you know, you're talking at that time, you know, thousands of lines of code. Oh, yeah. You know, thousands of lines of code. Yeah. And you know, even for a CubeSat, like there was still a lot of stuff that we had to take care of for Phoenix, but it, you know, it definitely was nowhere near as complex as yeah. incorporating um, every everything that you guys need to with a large yeah. spacecraft, of course. Uh, segueing into a, a different system. So even though we, you can't talk about the, your space lasers, um, I would imagine that pointing requirements are probably some of the most, they're, they're really some of the most important requirements to consider for spacecraft in general, and especially for intelligence missions and, and science missions. Um, but since there's gravity, you know, we can't really fully do systems level testing on ADCS systems. So I was wondering how you usually go about verifying ADCS requirements um, or at the systems level? Uh, I, I would think this would be like a mixture of testing and then simulation, but you know, I don't sim really know Simulation and analysis. Yeah. Uh, it, test, testing, it's, you know, I mean, you can show where, where you're pointing, you know, where you can send a command and the, the system will actually point. But uh, it, it really doesn't show you any ringing of the spacecraft or anything mm -hmm. like that. And so uh, analysis, you know, good analysis will uh, show that. And so, so it's, it's mostly through analysis that, uh, uh, that you verify what your pointing accuracies. And, of course, the, uh, the pointing accuracy itself, you know, is distributed throughout the system. And, uh, and so you, you've got to show, you know, where, you know, your ACS, for example, is contributing or not contributing and, uh, and everything else, uh, you know, your stabilization, the sensor itself, uh, anything that's been allocated, you know, to pointing accuracy uh, has to be, you know, analyzed and demonstrated. That, that it meets the constraints that have been put on it. It's like when you got to the systems level, like even with analysis, did you ever have to do like any additional gain tuning once everything was in there or was it, it's pretty much all just, just yeah, analysis it, and until you get you, to orbit? You did have to do some gain tuning uh, and, and especially with, with uh, 
one of the the big problems is that you with certain systems you want to be able to go from one target to another very quickly and of course when you stop the spacecraft it, it wants to there, there's jitter mm -hmm. and and you want that jitter to ring out as fast as possible and so there there took there took a lot of tweaking to that sometimes uh, and just anything that's added to the spacecraft can contribute to that. And that's, you know, that's where, you know, all of the original analysis comes into play. But sometimes when you finally get it all together and do system, system test and analysis of pointing accuracy, you're going to have to do a little bit of uh, playing around and, and fixing some things, maybe stiffening up a little bit. Hopefully it doesn't take that. You can do it with software, but uh, you know, that's, you know, the number, the number one goal of a sensor like that is that you have to have the pointing accuracy that's required. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really tough to get that. Gotcha. So are you basically like testing the, the spacecraft in, in real time and then adjusting the gain based on um, like uh, a test, like test signals of, of different well, types of like. Yeah, when when it's on when it's on orbit is the only time that you can you can really test it. Right. And and what you can what you can tweak depending on the satellite, whether you're using torquers or CMGs or you know whatever you're using, uh, what you do is you tweak those. Okay. So there are on like on orbit updates that are that, essentially correct. done to yeah. fix that. You can, you okay. can tweak it. That makes sense. All right. And and then you guys would normally you guys have prop systems too. So I mean you, like similarly with those, like you can't test maneuvers, but there has to be some way to to verify that those are still at least operating normally. Um, mm -hmm. like during TVAC and, and Vibe. So right. like did you normally just check for like leaks in the in the prop tank or yes. were you mostly just looking at like nominal telemetry voltages, um, temperatures. All the above, you mm -hmm. you know you do leak checks and and then do telemetry checks, uh, and that was basically it in terms of ground test. And of course, you know, God forbid you get a leak, you know, once you've launched, and uh, I've never seen that. But boy, that'd sure take your satellite out of commission. You know, if you had a gas leak out out of one of your prop tanks. Yeah, that would be bad, <laughs> but uh, you know, most most of it was was all done, you know, on the ground. You know, a series of leak checks and then you know telemetry for the rest of it. What what kind of telemetry were you looking at? Is it is it normally was it just voltages and temperatures or were mm -hmm. there most other... well, mostly yeah mostly volt voltages and temperatures and okay. uh, the uh, the prop components themselves were tested at the at the factory to make sure that they were working and, and putting out the the right amount of energy, and and that was really the last time it was done, and and then the rest of it was like you said was you know telemetry and voltage checks, just to make sure that you could turn it on and off, uh, and that the software if it was turning it on for you, you know a a microsecond that it was a microsecond that it was on and and then off. Okay. Um, so so that was the biggest thing there. Okay. So next next test or I'm sorry next question. Um, 
One thing that I'm, I'm really curious about for large and more complex systems is how you actually like build everything up to a working system. So uh, like more so in terms of, um, I guess, like software deliverables. So um, like on, on Phoenix, in order to get Phoenix to a fully working system, what, what we did is, is we would set milestone dates for certain demos. So like our, our first demo was, okay, just take a picture and then downlink it to the ground station. And so that um, that kind of helped provide focus for, you know, all of these other tasks that we had to develop for the flight software, but it, it at least focused in on, okay, by, you know, this near term date, this is what we need to have done in order to, um, in order to progress and eventually get to a, like the, the full working system that we need. So um, did you guys do something similar or was it mostly just software had all of the requirements, they just went down um, tested it all out, and then once like they said they they met all the requirements for a specific payload, then that was kind of delivered, and you made updates from there. It, it was really the latter. Okay. Uh, of course, you know we we had fairly detailed simulators that that they could test the software on, and and like I said, it was tested many times, and uh, of course the the. The configuration control on software is incredible. You know, every every little thing is documented, mm-hmm. and and so they, you know, the soft the software build uh, was made. It was tested against the simulator. Everything was was fixed, uh, and then it was taken and uh, and incorporated into system test as, as much as possible. And again, anytime you were dealing with the real satellite, it was command by command Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that uh, it was reacting exactly the same way as it did on the simulator. Sometimes the simulator was wrong and, you know, we'd run into problems and find out that a particular command did something that we weren't expecting. But, you know, again, running command by command, you didn't ruin anything. Right. Though I, I mean, I guess now that I think about it too, um, you guys have probably had a, a much more controlled process for how everything actually oh, got on yes. to the system. So I mean, like yes. you have to have you have to have software reviews and say, you know, this is approved, and you know, now that we've passed this review, we can actually move into design um, or like into systems integration and in you know and putting all of these components together and testing them. Whereas like our project was a lot more flexible in that we didn't we didn't have that, and so. We, we kind of just had to, um, we were just really trying to make it work kind of like as yeah. we went. And that was how we, that was how we really learned everything. We learned all of the things that like we were missing yeah. or that we had to add at the systems level and then incorporated it. Yeah, software was really a system unto itself, if you will, and went through it, its own, it, it, its own uh, design reviews mm-hmm. and, and up, up to CDR. And it uh, by the time that that the set the command set you know made it through CDR, it was pretty much perfect. Very few problems with command software. Again, if the process was followed and everybody did their job, there were very few problems because they had the simulator to find problems. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of they had a lot of them before it you know it hit the you know the the floor during system test, but uh, usually by the time it got to system test, they were, they were pretty good. So 
Speaking of like systems level testing, that's you know definitely pro like one of the most critical phases of the entire project. Yes. Um, so what what drives like the the level of testing that you do at the systems level and and how like meticulous that it really gets? Is it you know just mostly just just funding and and like budget and schedule like like we were talking about earlier? Or? Well, I I think you know system test is one of those things that or one of those. Uh, items that is driven from from the very beginning and designed from the very beginning because if you do your requirements right up front you're you're doing a uh, requirements verification and test matrix and and showing at the system level and it, it's also done at the subsystem level but we're talking system here you're showing at the system level how every single requirement is going to be tested, how it's going to be tested, and what the result of that test is. And, and so that defines in total what your system test is going to be, and you can also from that define what your cost is going to be. Okay. So, so it's from that RVTM that it's kind of like a, you know, a requirements WBS, if you will. It, it, it defines your system test and, and how extensive it's going to be and uh, how expensive it's going to be. And the, and the customer can always say that, you know, rather than, than by analysis, the only thing we want to make sure of is that it's getting 12 volts. So just show us 12 volts rather than going through this detailed uh, analysis to prove something else. They can always say that. I've seen it happen in a couple instances, uh, but not many, because usually the, the engineers that are putting together the, you know, the, the system test engineers know, know what they're doing and why they're testing and what needs to be the result of the test in order to ensure that you have a good product. And uh, so it, it's really that, that uh, requirements verification test matrix that, that defines system test and how extensive it's going to be, the schedule that you can run it on, and the cost of it. Okay. Yeah, for us, that was definitely, I think that the level of systems testing that we got to at the end for us was mostly driven by schedule um, mm. when it came down to it. And, you know, and, and we did as much systems level testing as we could along the way. So, so we, we, would, we would work towards like these, these minimum minimum goals and objectives and then work on making it better from there. And, and eventually the, the system became a much more robust system. But yeah, it was definitely, we were definitely limited in what we could do based on how close we were to, to delivery. Like mm -hmm. um, we weren't able to get in a lot more um, of our like critical power testing at, at more of the systems level. Cause so much of it was just taken up by software development, making sure that all of yeah. the, the key components of software were there. I think, you know, probably from, from listening to you, you know, one of the, the big differences between the, you know, the CubeSat that you've been working on and some of the, you know, the, the really large systems that go up is, is that they are much more structured processes and, and have a lot less room for a little schedule slippage. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to be quite so structured, you, you know, with the CubeSat, mm -hmm. um, which is good, I think. 
because it gives you a lot more leeway, uh, you know, to learn. Yeah. And that was, yeah. I mean, that was, de- that's definitely like another area where there's, there's a very large disparity between larger and more complex spacecraft versus mm-hmm. CubeSats at the university level is that we didn't have a lot of that structure because we, there's so much that we didn't know. And even, I mean, Phoenix took three years for development and, and even then there was, you know, we were, we were still always, you have to learn all of the subsystems and what goes into that. And then also how to be efficient in putting all of that together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff that we didn't, we definitely didn't really start to get right and, until the end. And, and we finally got like a pretty, I think a pretty solid uh, process down. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to, to talk about the differences between like, like your experiences versus mine um, mm-hmm. because of that. So. But when you, you, when you come right down to it, it's not that much different. Right. There's, there's some subtleties in, in, in the, the scaling, but it's not that much different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if, yeah, it's interesting to, to talk about the differences between like, like your experiences versus mine um, mm-hmm. because of that. So the same team were Excuse to me. develop, you know, a different CubeSat now, like it would probably be structured, maybe not to like the same level, but it would definitely be a lot more structured than it was uh you know since we were we we had to figure things out along the way essentially so kind of ending more of the testing and integration questions um i have to ask what are some of the most craziest and or most terrifying schedule issues that you've had to deal with aside from the um the the payload the sensor example that you gave earlier other than that one i don't think i've ever had one we've we've had to do schedule changes and do rolling waves those aren't scary they're very stressful hmm. uh when when you know you can't make schedule you when, when you you know for some reason or another you have a slippage and and you have to start doing rolling wave schedule changes uh where you're just doing well, a few weeks at a time Oh, gotcha. Okay. And, and hoping that you can get somehow or another get back on schedule. Uh, you may have moved your schedule out, but what you do is you, you plan for whatever the customer wants. It depends on how drastic it is. But, you know, here's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. And then here's what we're going to do for the three weeks after that. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully what happens is after a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth, the program gets back to where you can, between yourself and the customer, approve a new schedule and then stick to it. Okay. And uh, and that unfortunately happens way too much. You know, you're always optimistic, uh, you know, when you sign the contract and, and, uh, you know, over, even a couple of years, things change mm-hmm. and you run into problems that were totally unforeseen. Uh, and, you know, hopefully what you can do is prepare the customer for it. You know, the worst thing you can do is, is go and tell a customer that three weeks ago we knew that something was going to happen and we never told you because we thought you could fix it. Mm-hmm. And that, that never goes over well at all. But I think that's the the biggest thing is that you just have these unforeseen circumstances and nothing can be done about it. And you just have to keep the customer apprised of it. 
and uh, you know cost and schedule are are always issues. Uh, technology is uh, only once did we run into a technology issue that that we didn't think we could meet the the performance uh, requirements, and it turned out we could and did. Uh, but uh, it, it's cost and schedule that that drives you nuts. You know, in, in both of those, it, it has to do with things that change that, that you don't have any control over or didn't think you had any control over. Yeah, I mean, I think all of, um, we definitely did that several times when, when developing Phoenix. Um, and, and we look back at our old schedule and just kind of laugh at ourselves and be like, oh, we were such fools to, to think <laughs> that that was possibly even, even achievable. Um, so, I mean, pretty much a lot of our schedules towards the end were definitely uh, like rolling waves because, like I said, you know, we, we were learning throughout the whole thing. And, and so yeah. there was just, we would shoot for um, a large date for, for a large milestone and then try to meet that as best as possible with um, developing smaller, more achievable milestones about two weeks out that, that we could actually complete. And um, for the throughout the design phase, it was definitely a lot easier for us to to meet um, like our, our PDR and CDR dates and have a lot to to really demonstrate. But when it really came down to developing the software and actually working with the hardware, that definitely became a lot. That definitely became a lot more difficult to manage, and we did we did a lot of that. So, one more question on schedule: What were some of like what were just some of the biggest lessons learned? Uh, that you learned in, in creating schedules throughout systems integration and test? Well, I think the, the biggest thing was that, you know, Murphy's law is always in effect. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to keep a positive attitude, but it just seems that uh, it, Murphy's law bites you every time. If something can go wrong, it's going to go wrong. And you just try and prevent, you know, do whatever you can to, you know, keep everything on track. But that's the, the biggest thing with schedules is that, you, you know, one little slip one day can cause a, you know, a huge slip uh, a month from now. And, and so you, you just try and keep the schedule as, as best as you can. Um, but it, it's, it's really hard to do because there's so many unknown unknowns out there you know, when you're dealing with these systems and, and that, that's what bites you uh, is, and you, you try to, you, you know, have people that are constantly looking for that, you know, what is, uh, what's gonna, what's, what can happen and, and what's the probability of it. And that's all part, I think of, you know, a good upfront risk analysis too. Not only with the with the uh, technical part of the system, but also cost and schedule. You know what what is your risk with cost and schedule? And if if people are honest up front, you know, in the beginning of the program, maybe you can you know prepare uh, for you know things to come. I think you know. Uh, I just happened to think of, you know, one of the issues that I had to deal with is a uh, machinist strike at Lockheed. And it, it was well known months in advance that there was a high probability of machinists going on strike and nobody took it into account in a program, in any of the programs. And when they went on strike, it, it was mayhem. 
um, and schedules slipped, costs increased, and a lot of that could have been alleviated. It couldn't have been done away with, but alleviated. The cost couldn't could have been cut down, and the schedule slippage could have been cut down if it would have been taken into account up front, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't. So that was a kind of a known unknown if people would have thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it's, you know, those have to be taken into account. And then it's the unknown unknowns that really bite you. If that just came up all of a sudden and it was a wildcat strike, then, you know, nobody knew about it. Nobody could do anything about it. And you just have to take it. And the customer has to understand that too. They may mm-hmm. not be happy, but there's nothing anybody can do. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I have, I have, I have one more question. Uh, last one, and th- this has been a, a really like awesome, awesome conversation. I, I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Um, so final question uh, is, do you have any like noteworthy systems INT memories that you would like to share that you haven't already? Can be a horror story, can, uh, and a tale of woe, or a, a tale of, of triumph? I, I, I think I've... Uh shared everything there there's you, you know there's one corollary to, to Murphy's law and that that's they, they call it finagle's law and that's that uh, if anything bad is going to happen according to Murphy's law it will happen at the worst possible time <laughs> and that's yeah. finagle's law and, yeah. and it, it somehow or another you know both of those you know we we laugh at them yeah, but they're true. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's most of, uh, you know, if something goes bad on a satellite program, it's never a good time. And, and it's uh, most of the time, it's the worst possible time that it could happen. Yeah, but, we experienced uh, like three of those, three completely different cases of those on Phoenix um, within just the final month before delivery. So uh, that was fun times. Said with much, much sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Understood. Yeah. I would do flight integration again. Like it was, it was awesome and rewarding and I loved it, but uh, I also don't want to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Going to systems engineering. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's, that's all I have. Um, Okay. Well, it's been fun. No, no, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for doing this again with me. I really appreciate it. I hope it was worth your while. Oh, absolutely. Thank you all again for tuning in to another episode of the Art of Space Engineering. I hope you found this conversation as fun and informative as I did while recording it. So tune in every two weeks for more adventures on space engineering. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to rate the series, share it with your friends, and follow this on Facebook for future updates. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.